Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to uh, welcome you to uh, one more episode of uh, ClinTech Gig. It's an honor today to have uh, with me uh, Mr. Uh, Jorg Heinemann from uh, Anna Venue. Jorg, uh, welcome to uh, ClinTech Gig. Uh, and today what we're going to discuss is something which is very current with the uh, implementation and uh, introduction of more renewable uh, energy, especially uh, in, in, all the, in all the different grids around the world in the, in the global uh, electricity generation system, um, we will need more batteries, we will need more storage. So this is a very sort of current um, topic discussed with uh, all the regulatory authorities around around the world and it's something that troubles all us developers when we uh, when we develop projects either on the generation or the storage side so uh, Jorg uh, thank you very much for taking the time to uh, to join us uh, looking forward for uh, for a very uh, insightful discussion uh, and and just to start with um, can you tell us briefly a bit about you and and also how did it all began and what is uh, what is your vision? Terrific. Good to be with you, Ipatios. Uh, yeah, I'm Jorg Heinemann. I'm the CEO of Enervenue. Um, I've been in renewable energy in a variety of roles now for the last 14 years. Uh, that includes about four years in batteries and eight years before that as part of the uh, senior executive team at SunPower doing large-scale solar uh, development, installation, and operations of solar power plants around the world. And in a, what feels like a lifetime before that, I was a senior partner with Accenture for many, many years in the high-tech business. And um, about a year and a half ago, uh, after nearly three years in the battery world, I was about to, to leave batteries and go back into uh, and you know a different part of the energy value chain um, because I had concluded I, I thought that the the battery game had largely been won by lithium-ion batteries and and I received a call through a search firm um, uh, at looking for a CEO uh, who wanted to take on a new battery startup uh, to assist a founder named Professor Yishui at Stanford and I thought oh man here we go again another battery startup what's it going to be like well uh, it turns out that Professor Shui uh, had had thought about or taken a fresh look at the battery sector and, and thought about, well, what would be a really good way of making a super durable, super flexible, incredibly long lasting battery? Uh, and what he concluded was uh, nickel hydrogen was the way to do it. Uh, and uh, he got really excited. Then he started looking around and realized that actually that had been done already nearly th actually over 30 years ago uh, and then these types of batteries which uh, which operate completely differently from other batteries had actually been in operation for over three decades um, however they were incredibly expensive so he set his team about how do we build that same kind of battery but with far lower cost materials and and that result is what we're doing now and we have a a unique battery it functions in a very different way from other technologies like lithium-ion uh, and, uh, and it has unique advantages and characteristics as well as a very attractive uh, cost profile both upfront cost and overall levelized cost of energy that's quite exciting sounds uh, it sounds uh, you know uh, 
that uh, you've put a bit of innovation into uh, into uh, you know into action there. Um, but before we be going to the innovative bit, we've seen quite a you know huge let's say a huge evolution on the battery um, on the battery technology over the past uh, ten years. So the battery technology has evolved. So in, in your opinion, what are the main drivers behind that sort of evolution and how things are going to look perhaps in 10 years from now? Yeah, I think I think what's happened here is about 10 or 12 years ago when uh, renewable energy began to gain popularity and folks like me got into the business, I think the expectation was that solar and batteries would uh, grow, evolve, and, uh, and and take hold at about the same rate? I think certainly the clean tech investment community believed that, and and what we saw is that uh, the adoption of solar, the cost reduction of solar, the capability advantages uh, advanced very very rapidly, and have now you know reached the point where solar is the no-brainer source of power generation around the world, the most economical way you can generate power, period, and it's only getting cheaper. Um, however, it's taken batteries a, a much longer time to, to get to that point. Um, the primary challenge historically has been cost. Uh, we've always been able to use batteries for you know, as long, you know, at a super, super high price. I think six years ago, we were looking at the typical price around $1,000 per kilowatt hour of storage. Uh, now it's down to roughly one fifth that around 200 and falling fast. Um, but it took a long time to get there and the ability to scale up and the ability for these you know, batteries of different forms and, and factors and technologies to actually work and function has been harder. So it, uh, it's just a, you know, a more difficult thing to do. The evidence would show for uh, battery companies to figure out chemistries and get them to work and, and that sort of thing. Um, I think we're going to see uh, rapid advancement now accelerating quickly on the battery front um, for all types of batteries, for chemical batteries, and that includes the, the type of battery that we at Intervenue are building, um, as well as continued cost reduction and maturity for lithium-ion batteries, um, as well as for things like mechanical storage and uh, uh, and, and things like uh, uh, thermal storage and so forth for for certain use cases. So it's kind of an it's an all of the above, uh, and it's badly needed because the you know, the logical progression is to take inexpensive, frankly close to free renewable power, whether that's solar or wind, uh, and store that in a battery for times when the sun is not shining, the wind is not blowing, and the net result is a hundred percent clean energy uh, electric power capability that can serve us at all, you know, all, all scales across the energy value chain going forward. But I, w I, I would add to that that what we need to do as an industry is to offer that at the right sort of price, which is a point that we're going to touch uh, a bit later on in our, in our discussion. Um, so uh, regarding that evolution that you were just mentioning, I mean, a natural sort of suspect would be the EVs, would be the electric vehicles that uh, that are driving this sort of evolution. You know, higher capacity in the you know in a in a smaller space, more condensed, um, but also the need for uh, storing intermittent power 
production from uh, from renewable energy sources in order to replace perhaps that's uh, that base load that more traditional uh, you know fossil driven uh, generation forms uh, might might offer um do you see anything else uh, on on that space or these are the two sort of main areas that they drive forward the development and the evolution in the, in the battery space yeah I think I, I would I would uh, perhaps take a step back and say we um, we have been enjoying a electric power industry that has been essentially unchanged around the world for the last 100 perhaps even 150 years and and that that value chain that that electric power industry has been based on central station generation typically through fossil fuel based power plants pushed one way over transmission lines and then distributed to a point of variable load. Um, and it's worked quite remarkably and inexpensively in most parts of the world. Um, if, if, you, if you think about what we pay for electric power that comes from our power outlet and it, it arrives there reliably at very low cost despite the variability in, on the load side. Uh, and we're, we're used to it and it works. And that's a, that's a value chain that has essentially no inventory in it, meaning it's always, you know, stays perfectly in balanced and in, at least in the, the developed world, uh, the, you know, the lights stay on and, uh, you know, it's, it's there when we need it. Um, most of the time, yeah, huh? <laughs> but, yeah, most of the time, perhaps a little less so. Um, and that, that old value chain is now being massively disrupted. It's being disrupted because the least expensive form of power generation by far is intermittent. It's solar and it's wind. And those two things are, are already below two cents per kilowatt hour uh, in many parts of the world. And they're falling faster. And as those power generating assets fully amortize, that incremental cost will essentially be zero. So you've got the cheapest form of power is intermittent. Then in parallel with that, we've been deregulating the electric power industry around the world. So we've been allowing uh, consumers and companies and whoever to buy power from whatever source they want and have it be pushed across the, you know, the, the transmission grid, uh, which causes congestion, much like on a freeway system. So we have deregulation causing congestion, and then we have an aging power infrastructure uh, that is subject to failures in, in California, it's, a, it's been the source of wildfires and things as, as power infrastructure elements are, are failing. Um, and then on the distributed end, on the, on the consumer end, we have the proliferation of both local generation and distributed solar, in some cases distributed wind, as well as the electrification of everything as we see the adoption of electric vehicles and we see the adoption of uh, electrification of homes, of cooking, of kind of everything we do. Layer on top of that, the challenge we have with climate change, and it's almost a perfect storm of, we have a, an electric power value chain that is fundamentally gonna be rethought, reshaped, and rebuilt in the coming years. Now, I, I can't tell you whether it's five years from now, 10 years from now, certainly 50 years from now, uh, the electric power grid as we know it and the electric power industry will be fundamentally different. And so every part of that, think, begin with electrify everything um, and then rethink how things work. Well, instead of a one-way value chain, we're going to have variable generation. We're going to have flexible transmission and distribution. 
buffered with lots and lots of energy storage mechanisms. And then at the, you know, at the consumer end, we'll have distributed generation, local storage, and a whole lot of the world will be able to effectively defect from the grid simply based on economic reasons. Meaning I can generate solar on my house, put it in a battery, self-consume that and cover perhaps all of my electric power needs myself without even needing the grid. And that'll be true in, in many parts of the world and for many customers and, and increasingly so. So we, we have a fundamental transformation. I, I'd sum it up and say, I think it's the single biggest economic transformation that, uh, that we will see in our lifetimes, even bigger than the internet perhaps. I would agree definitely on uh, you know on that. I think we, we've uh, I've been discussing a lot with my students in the university, saying that if if you see at our uh, you know at how the world runs at the moment, the the single point that has been the less sort of innovation until now is the power grid. It's a transmission. It's it's how do we generate energy? And it's I mean you look at these sort of big towers, eh, the transmission towers, the grid towers. It's zero zero evolution, zero innovation until you know a few years ago. Uh, the, the the whole thing remained pretty much the same since since it started. Um, so it's it's definitely I would definitely agree there with you that uh, I think it's it's quite exciting uh, to see all of that and combine that with uh, with a smart grid with a micro generation on consumer level uh, that you know the, the two way sort of interactive way that that the uh, the consumers or prosumers as as they call now will start interacting with uh, with the grid and all the uh, extra services that we can uh, we can offer through 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 that. So uh, going back to the to the technology, we've seen that lithium ion has been the dominant one and there is a reason and I would like to, to hear your opinion on that. But um, given your technology, uh, I would like also to know how do you classify your batteries, the classification uh, that, that you use within your technology. Um, and and what sort of changes are we going to see? What is what is what is up and coming? And and does one sort of solution fit all, or do we have to go and specialize and look at the application? What do we need to do, and then apply the right sort of technology to it? Great. Well, so so let's take a closer look at the technology, and I'll begin with lithium ion. Lithium ion. Um, turns out to be a very effective energy storage technology for a lot of different use cases. It's very energy dense and getting denser, meaning you can store a lot of energy in a small lightweight footprint that makes it ideal for mobile applications. Um, it can be used quite flexibly, meaning it can be charged quickly or slowly and then discharged fast or slow. Um, uh, and then the cost is coming down quite rapidly because of the the scale up factor, meaning the, the amount of battery factory capacity being brought online to mostly to support electric vehicle batteries. So it's quite good. However, um, it has some fundamental challenges. Uh, it's taken a very long time to extend the life cycle of, of uh, or the cycle life of lithium ion batteries. I think we're all familiar with our electronic devices, uh, laptops, cell phones, and so forth. And, the, the batteries tend to wear out, they degrade over time to the point where typically, you know, depending on what you're doing with them, my, my iPhone is a couple of years old now, it's two years old roughly, and 
the battery life is nowhere near what it was when I bought it, and I'm about to go get her, you know, get the battery replaced, perhaps the cell phone replaced. That same mechanism, basically that degradation, that cycle life is a challenge. Um, the uh, the other challenge that that we we see is uh, temperature and kind of durability of these things. Um, well, the chemistry involved in in batteries, especially lithium ion, it tends to have a happy zone that's roughly at room temperature. And if the battery gets too hot uh, or too cold, then bad things happen. Uh, you can, you know, if, if you have if things get too hot, you can reach what's called the thermal runaway. Basically, the thing can catch on fire. If it gets too cold, it can be very difficult to sustain a charge or keep a charge. Um, so there's a lot of sophisticated mechanisms required and a lot of systems that that allow those batteries to you know, stay within their happy zone and you have to control it very carefully. So it's quite temperamental and it's uh, it's not nearly as, as durable as we would like batteries to be. Now, our technology and our venues technology is fundamentally different from chemical batteries, which includes uh, things like, like lithium ion. And we, we store energy by, um, uh, as we charge, we build up hydrogen in a pressure vessel. Uh, and that, when we do that through a catalytic reaction, it's essentially the same as a fuel cell, like you might find in a fuel cell vehicle, but at a far lower pressure. So as we're charging, we build up hydrogen, that's, that's how we store energy. And then as we discharge the battery, that hydrogen gets reabsorbed into water, in simple terms. And the nature of that hydrogen evolution, hydrogen oxidation reaction chain is really, really robust. Uh, so it allows for, uh, you, know, you know, it allows for extreme temperatures. This, this works at 60 degrees Celsius. It works at minus 40 degrees Celsius without heating systems, without air conditioning systems, without, you know, it can't catch on fire. There's no safety issues. So you don't have to have a fire suppression system. Uh, so it's extremely robust in that sense. It also withstands abuse, meaning the battery can be overcharged or over discharged. And if you've ever let your car battery drain, drain all the way to zero, maybe you've done that once or twice or say two or three times at least, you, you recognize that the battery needs to be replaced pretty quickly after going all the way to zero. Well, our, our battery withstands that uh, no problem. So you can drain it all the way and then the battery lives on fine. <clears throat> you can also overcharge it, which would cause a fire or a failure in the battery. <clears throat> in most batteries, but our, our battery, Intervenue's battery, uh, lives happily through that. And the, the net net is we have a battery that has an, a, uh, a cycle life of at least 30,000 cycles. That would be three full cycles a day for 30 years. It's basically an infinite life battery and it requires no means. It doesn't need to be touched during that time. So it's an install and forget battery. These, uh, these batteries were designed uh, nearly 30 years ago for use in outer space, specifically satellites and things like the International Space Station and uh, Hubble Space Telescope. So the, the use case was a battery that would last forever, withstand the rigors of outer space and require no maintenance. Uh, and then our, our principal innovation is finding a way to do that with very low cost materials that are earth abundant that allows us to compete at an upfront cost, a capital cost, uh, similar to lithium ion and deliver the customer though a battery that has this extreme flexibility and durability 
but with a zero maintenance cost associated with it. Um, and that's a uh, that, that's a significant advantage because of that that set of capabilities. Um, and it's really, really useful, particularly for stationary use cases. It's a, our batteries are somewhat heavier and, and larger, and you wouldn't want to use it in a, you know, anything mobile. Certainly not a cell phone or a vehicle or that kind of thing. But it's great for pairing it with renewable power or simply having it as as stationary uh, battery buffers, if you will, along the electric power value chain. So, what you're saying is that actually. We need to see the application, and for each application, there is a specific technology that fits fits the outfit, if you would like, fits the bill. Um, so one one technology or one system does not fit all. Um, uh, you've touched also on the on the limitations of battery technology. You talked about the life uh, the, the life cycle, the, the charge and discharge cycle, cycles, and so on and so forth. So. What is the, the improvement that we can expect? Are we going to see improvements that uh, will be, let's say, a factor of five or a factor of 50? Uh, I mean, I was, uh, I remember um, looking at a documentary about the, um, the the Tesla batteries that they were using in the initial, in the initial Tesla S and the, the batteries that they're using now in Tesla 3. And they were saying that within, you know, a period of five, six, 10 years, They've managed to pretty much increase the capacity by about 50% on that specific technology. So, what is what is your take in all of this? Yeah, so I, I think I think it depends on the use case. So, what we're seeing in the electrical vehicle industry is um, the technology evolving from a very limited number of cycles. 20 years ago, uh, lithium-ion batteries could last maybe 200 cycles. They're now at uh, depending on the use case, they can be stretched into the thousands. Um, for electric vehicles, the target has been uh, grow the number of cycles to approximately 500, uh, you know, think 500 full charge discharge cycles, but expand the capacity at weight to allow a 500 mile or more range for the vehicle. Today, the, the typical newer generation electric vehicles are say in the 250 mile range um, so the, the industry is seeking to double that and do it in a way that allows a very fast charge, I think 10 or 15 minutes to charge the equivalent of a tank of gas. So, so you know, think use case light, long range and fast charging. That's that's what the, the EV batteries are optimizing for. And that's where lithium ion technology is particularly well suited. Um, now, on the, the stationary use cases, which is more where we play, it's a little bit of a different game. Um, there, uh, we and our competitors are working on how do you stretch the cycle out? How do you get, you know, not not to say a small number of thousands, one, two, three, or 4,000 cycles, but how do you grow that to 10,000 cycles, to 15,000 cycles, to 30,000 cycles? Candidly, we're already there. And then how do you do that at very low cost? So it fundamentally becomes a game of What's the cost per kilowatt hour that I would pay upfront to install my system? And then how much additional maintenance cost is there to maintain that, that battery storage solution over time? And with, with most batteries, other technologies, they tend to degrade, the battery wears out, and those battery packs or parts of those battery packs need to be augmented or replaced, or 
the owner of the system needs to think, oh, I'm going to oversize the battery and plan for this degradation over time, as well as be really careful about how I use the battery to stretch its usable lifetime. So that's kind of another evolution. Uh, what we're doing is we're coming at it from a different way. We're saying our battery, it, it just inherently lasts forever, 30,000 cycles. In fact, the, the earlier versions of these batteries ran for upwards of 100,000 cycles. So it's basically a forever battery. Uh, and it's, it's incredibly flexible. So we can allow the customer not to have to kind of the baby the battery and be really careful with it. We can allow them to do a, you know, a fast charge or a slow charge or a fast discharge followed by a slow discharge or whatever mix and match they want. Um, and, uh, and they don't have to think about of how am I going to use this thing? So it's a, it's a, it's a different way of coming at the problem. And that's, that's inherent in, in our technology where, because we're, we're basically operating like a half, half of a fuel cell that's reversible. Um, we've got this capability of a super flexible, super durable battery that we think is going to be really useful, not just for the use cases that we know about today. I think the biggest challenge is going to be the, use cases of the future as we as we get to this new electric power value chain that uh you know we know it's going to be different we know this variability that's been introduced at point of generation at point of transmission at point of distribution we, we know there's going to be a, the need for a whole lot of batteries um how and we think we know what that looks like we have a pretty good idea for the next couple of years I think candidly, the industry is not sure what exactly we're going to need, say five years from now, 10 years from now, et cetera. What, what do I want my battery to do? Well, what I'm absolutely certain of is we're going to need a lot of batteries that can operate at very low cost for a super long life and can be used very flexibly, meaning dispatched fast or slow based on whatever is called for at that point in time. Uh, so think about it like our our cell phones. We're used to, and even electric vehicles for that matter, we're used to being able to charge these devices quite quickly. Plug it into the wall, I get within as little as 15 minutes, as long as maybe an hour or two, I get close to a full charge. And then I can dispatch that battery fast or slow, depending on how I'm using my cell phone. Well, the same thing's going to be true at larger scale. And that's something that is quite difficult in the industry. Uh, we, we do, and our venue does that really well. Candidly, the other, other types of technology tend to struggle with that. They tend to want either a really fast, you know, really fast charge followed by a fast discharge or very, very typically more often than not very slow charge, you know, followed by a slow and steady discharge. Uh, so, so that's an area of innovation. And then of course the other innovation to look for is cost because there's a lot of, discussion in the industry about so-called short duration batteries and medium duration batteries and long duration or ultra long duration even getting into seasonal etc and the fundamental difference between all of those is is really cost what's the uh, what's the price point what's the cost per kilowatt hour the cost per cycle of uh, of charge um, uh, charge discharge cycle uh, that that's fundamentally what what you know, makes it economically feasible to have something you know, be usable as a long duration storage device or simply only as a short one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You've touched on cost and I think this is quite important, uh, Jörg. Um, looking at 
how the situation currently is on the developed world. Let's take let's take the Western development world, developed world more as a, as an example rather than anything else. And if I calculate the current sort of cost of utilization of the the grid and the, the generation as it stands now, and then I compare it with a, a sort of system that is driven by solar plus storage, then we look at, from a consumer's point of view um, at two to three times the cost if you compare the two. So this is a this is a, a current issue that we need to face um, as an industry. So is there a way to address that? Are we going to address that through more deployment? And as we deploy more, we expect costs to be driven down. So it's economies of scale. Are we addressing that through innovation? Is it a combination of many different factors? What what what's your opinion on that? Yeah, well, I actually the, the numbers I'm seeing are you know might might actually argue against your hypothesis or view it in a slightly different way. Um, and I'll, I'll begin with the developing world. So think, you know, parts of Africa, for example, that today rely on on uh, diesel fuel generation, basically generators powered by diesel fuel. Um, the levelized cost of that, meaning that the cost per kilowatt hour of power tends to be in the 20 to 30 dollar cents per kilowatt hour range, which is extraordinarily expensive. It's even higher if that particular customer is in a very remote location or perhaps a dangerous location where the cost of transporting the diesel fuel increases it. It can be 50 cents or a dollar per kilowatt hour of generation. Contrast that with at today's prices, solar plus a battery plus perhaps a diesel generator as, as backup in case there's an extended cloudy period. And in most places, comfortably, a customer can do solar plus storage for half of the cost, half the levelized cost, meaning being you know 10 to 15 cents per kilowatt hour, uh, uh, you know total cost of power generated on a levelized basis. So, in, in other words, it's more economical uh, to go renewable in these cases. Um, the same thing we're finding is increasingly true in the Western world. I live here in California. Um, I've got a, a brother who's doing uh, a lot of solar installations for uh, for rental properties that he owns, and and he's able to essentially build those at a cost paired with batteries that would allow that those individual homes to defect from the grid. Now he's doing that at wholesale prices at the moment, but we're very close to that with where battery storage prices are are headed, where you know my, my whole neighborhood, you know, individually or as a collective. Could easily be able to defect from the grid and generate and self-consume our own renewable power at a price that's far less than we would be paying the local electric utility. And that phenomenon is going to take hold around the world. Uh, and of course, it depends somewhat on how much solar resource is available, but the you know the basic principles are and the economic gravity, if you will, of falling prices for renewable generation falling prices for storage uh, will allow us to, to do those sorts of things uh, virtually everywhere over time. I say virtually because there are, you know, there are locations where, you know, it's darker, you don't have as much solar resource you need to rely on, say, wind power, etc. But with the 
the right capacity of batteries at the right price point. Uh, and all indications are we're heading there quite rapidly. We'll, we will be able to do it, I think, to a far greater degree than a lot of the analysts who are studying this today uh, tend to believe. Yeah, I think we've seen, uh, we've, we've, we've beaten every expectation on the solar side, at least uh, looking uh, from 2000 until now, the projections of how solar and wind will be uh, developed from the, uh, you know, from the International uh, Energy uh, Association or the, uh, the authorities around the world. I think the predictions were beaten uh, in, in, in every single case. So hopefully we will see the same sort of, uh, you know, rapid de deployment of, of batteries. And I think, you know, we cannot have the one without the other. So um, that's why now you have the, the so-called initial developers that were doing solar and wind, that they're now also jumping into the, in the storage sort of battery, uh, let's say, train uh, to move forward. So it's, it's definitely coming there. Um, now, we do have a significant investment on the storage side and on the battery side. Um, I think there is millions and millions being pumped into into that. You've got the main sort of players, you know, BYD, LG, and, and all the others, Tesla perhaps that uh, that they are driving driving that. But there is also many startups like like yours uh, that. Um, trying to capitalize on a novel technology or an idea or something or repurpose something or was used differently into a different way and, and turn it into a storage sort of facility. We've seen situations with, with uh, gravitational storage and you know, pumped pump hydro and all sorts of different things um, that people uh, came, came with. But also this sort of startups, and I think it was Bill Gates in his last book that um, famously said that he's lost uh, a lot of money in uh, in, uh, in battery startups. Um, uh, it's it's you know, so where are we going? Why why is 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 your company and a venue a different? Why why are you going to be you think a success instead of just another statistic? Yeah, I mean I think the industry has learned an awful lot over the last decade. As, as I mentioned earlier, I, th I think 10 years ago, the clean tech investment community believed batteries would be where many, many fortunes are made and would, would evolve roughly at the same rate as solar. And of course, that hasn't happened. I think we've, we've lagged behind by about 10 years, but I, I believe the industry has learned a lot. Uh, and the you know one of the things the industry has learned is that you know, scale and cost trumps everything else. I think that's why we're seeing electric vehicles or, or lithium-ion batteries um, bolstered by the volume of, of EVs coming online and the capacity required. Those costs have come down the fastest. Uh, the second thing that I think we've learned is the importance of uh, having a low maintenance cost. And unfortunately, many of the alternative battery plays uh, spent a, a number of years working with flow battery companies, for example, um, struggle from a really complicated device, plumbing, moving parts, filters, membranes that need to be replaced, those sorts of things uh, that uh, that create a, a maintenance intensive energy storage solution, uh, really complicated with a heavy maintenance cost. Uh, and, and that has an extraordinary impact on the overall cost of the energy solution. And it's, it's much bigger, I think, than, than most folks realize. Typically, um, for a power plant, uh, this is true for a solar plant, it's true for a gas thermal plant, it's true for a solar plus storage or wind plus storage, et cetera. Uh, the cost breakdown in terms of cost per kilowatt hour 
tends to be you know, roughly in thirds. Typically, one third is comprised by the upfront capital cost, the cost to build the plant, acquire the solar panels, the batteries, the land, construct it, develop it, all that stuff. Another third is the financing, the cost of debt, cost of equity, et cetera. And then a full remaining third is typically the operations and maintenance cost over the life of that plant. So having a storage device, or frankly, any kind of technology that has even a small maintenance component, even a couple to 4% a year, which is the typical range, adds up massively to this one third of the cost. And what we're finding is the lower maintenance technology solutions win as a result of that. And one thing Intervenue brings is essentially a zero maintenance cost. We've got an install and forget last forever battery. That's a huge economic advantage over technologies that have kind of a complicated uh, you know, maintenance mechanism built in just based on the complexity of, of their devices. Um, then, then perhaps the, the most important thing is the, the nature of flexibility of these devices. Uh, one of the reasons lithium-ion has been so dominant is because it allows us to charge the battery pretty quickly and then dispatch it fast or slow based on the use case. Um, that's something Intervenue does, frankly, even more flexibly than lithium-ion. So we've got the ability to charge fast or slow, dispatch fast or slow, depending on today's known use case, depending on anticipated tomorrow use case, and depending on where, you know, whatever the surprises that may come at us in the future. Um, and a lot of the alternative storage technologies struggle with that. They're, they're good typically at a real slow charge followed by a real fast discharge. I uh, sorry, a real slow charge followed by a slow, slow discharge, which makes it hard to adapt those to, uh, you know, to the kind of the flexible changing use cases and evolving to the future and so forth. Um, so I think that that's been one of the significant barriers that we've uh, that we faced. Um, now, having said all that, I think there's a lot of room for different alternatives. Pumped hydro has been around for many decades and it's widely considered the gold standard in terms of uh, you know, clean renewable power that, that is uh, quite inexpensive. Uh, however, you just can't, you can't put pumped hydro everywhere. You, you, you need a uh, difference in elevation and it's a pretty complicated thing, et cetera. It's not, uh, it's not something that can be easily installed or permitted in many parts of the world, in many localities. Uh, so there's you know there's a place for gravity uh, there's uh, there's a place for thermal storage perhaps in certain situations there's definitely a lot of room for very effective batteries particularly those that are flexible durable and long lasting uh, and then there's then there's an, another layer on this which is sustainability and uh, concern for the environment of the actual battery technologies themselves and when you look under the covers of how, how are these energy storage solutions made? What are the, uh, the main elemental ingredients, the chemicals, the processes required? Uh, how, how does a battery get recycled at the end of its lifetime effectively and, and so forth? Um, we're seeing increasing concern and awareness around that around the world, particularly with lithium-ion batteries, which tend to be uh, very difficult to manufacture, very difficult to recycle, and quite dangerous throughout their, their life cycle. Uh, Intervenue, for example, has a super simple battery. The manufacturing process is really simple, perhaps one-fifth as 
is cost intensive to build the battery per unit of volume. And then it's really easy to take apart and recycle. So it's a it's what the sustainability people call a cradle to cradle product. So we we take earth abundant materials, we make a battery that lasts for a very long time. At the end of that that life cycle, it can be easily taken apart uh, safely, quickly, and at low cost, and repurposed for either use in another battery or uh, or some other use. Jorg, just just a, a quick intervention there. I mean, I hear what you say. One of the big sort of issues that we're facing as developers slash investors is the bankability factor. So how does a small new startup, despite the, the significant success you had on, on raising new capital and someone has to recognize that, but how does a small startup um, goes over um, the, the hurdle of, of bankability? How are you going to achieve that? Yeah, it, it's a good question. And the, the, I think the energy community is inherently risk averse, meaning they're, uh, they're looking for demonstration that a new technology, even though we're a 30 year old technology that we're simply cost reducing, it's still perceived as new by the, the uh, especially the, the, uh, the project lenders who are providing financing for projects. Until we've demonstrated hundreds of megawatts in the field, we get that. Uh, so we're overcoming that in a few ways. First of all, the uh, the investors that we have behind this are very large scale A-list institutions uh, who understand our technology. They've seen it. Uh, they know they understand the team. They know what it can do. They know that it fundamentally works. So everything we're doing is it's not a science project. It's it's uh, you know taking a known technology that functions and simply optimizing the engineering and scaling it up. Um, they uh, So they're aware of that. Um, and then they're providing backing. So our our initial customer deployments will largely be based on lease uh, financing, meaning we're leasing the batteries to customers. We have the capital to do that. And therefore, the customer does not have to take that so-called bankability risk. Uh, they can simply basically buy the energy usage of the battery. Um, we expect what will happen. They will um, have a risk of supply, though. Imagine that you have a corporate PPA and that you need to supply and that batteries or so the storage technologies is part of your, you know, of, of, of your overall solution. You might not have the, the bankability on the on the capex side or the, the risk on the capex side, but you will have the, the the risk on the on the supply side. Won't you? If something goes wrong. Oh yeah, it's a question of who carries the risk, and and the bankability question is fundamentally around uh, who, you know, it, it really boils down to will the company, will the bank, the lender who is providing capital for a customer's energy project, will they provide that at a low interest rate at attractive financing essentially, and because the energy and value chain is so competitive, especially at the grid scale level. Uh, there's there's you know there's basically low profit and it requires low risk so a, a banker will not lend money to a project unless they're comfortable with every piece of their technology and that's considered unless the technology is so-called bankable uh, and to establish bankability requires a track record um, we saw the same thing in, happen in solar we built uh, my, my team built 
what at the time was one of the world's largest solar power plants. This was back in 2011. It was a 250 megawatt AC, 340 megawatt um, uh, peak solar power plant. And we had to build it essentially with a parental guarantee from, from our parent company uh, in order to get that done because we would not, not otherwise be able to attract uh, the right kind of financing. Well, two years later, uh, we built a plant that was more than twice the size at half the cost uh, with absolutely zero bank, you know, uh, zero bank guarantee or you know, zero parental guarantee. Uh, and we were essentially considered what had been not bankable, supposedly, uh, two years earlier was now 100% bankable and considered widely adopted around the world. Um, and the, basically the difference was you know, you know, maybe you could argue there was a little bit more track record, perhaps one year's worth of field data, uh, but the investment community's confidence in solar overall had suddenly you know, overcome that hurdle and reached confidence, you know, sufficient confidence. We saw the same thing happen in uh, late 2017 or early 2018 for large-scale batteries deployments for lithium-ion batteries. Uh, solar plus storage applications specifically. Up until then, the industry was basically looking at itself, thinking that lithium batteries of any kind, including lithium ion, were considered new and untested and unproven at grid scale use. And therefore they, they quote unquote, were not bankable. Um, then suddenly in Q1 of 2018, there was a, uh, a tender process, a, a public RFP process the results announced that Excel Energy had done in Colorado, and they showed uh, 400, I think it was 400 bids from 250 developers uh, doing pricing solar plus storage projects. And the average levelized cost of those projects was somewhere in the 3.6 cents per kilowatt hour, $36 per megawatt hour range. Uh, and suddenly overnight, uh, the the renewable energy community, including the bankers, realized in order to achieve that cost point, there's no room for any kind of margin or risk. So it means rock bottom material cost, rock bottom maintenance cost, rock bottom financing cost. Okay, if we're going to see that for 400 bids, we know there are bankers who are willing to get behind this technology. Therefore, lithium ion batteries must be bankable. So almost overnight, certainly quarter to quarter, that bankability switch flipped to on. And, and ever since, uh, you know, that particular storage technology has been considered fully bankable. Uh, well, we expect the same thing to happen uh, to other demonstrated capable technologies, especially ones like ours that have uh, the advantage of a 30-year track record of, of these types of batteries having worked in applications on the, the harshest climates conceivable, in it, which is outer space. Jörg, very quickly, when when are you going to have your full first commercial application with, with your technology? We'll, we'll be deploying those later this year. Later this year, by end of end of the year. Okay. That's right. Now, as a, as a last sort of, you know, closing thoughts, I mean, we, we need to be um, driving more, um, an increased sort of mix of renewable energy into the uh, into the global electricity system. I think latest figures in 2020 were about 11% penetration of renewables uh, in total, but also um, 
sorry, a massive, um, uh, a massive uh, increase in uh, coal fired uh, new uh, power stations, especially in, in countries like China. Now, where should our priorities be um, uh, at this stage? Where do you think? as an industry we should focus more we should focus our energy on innovation our investment and how can we how can we accelerate uh, more deployment of renewables and 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 storage yeah I, I think it's a very challenging question for all of us and it's interesting because we've reached a point where renewable power has economic gravity on our side meaning new wind generation new new solar generation coupled with batteries is the lowest cost form of generation going forward. So if you look at what this, this is why all the money is pouring and let's, let's set sustainability aside. Let's set climate change aside and say, if I'm a power plant developer, the, the same people developing gas thermal plants uh, a couple decades ago, or even coal plants before that are now investing their resources in renewables and they're doing it because it's, the most economically viable, and certainly it's that's only going to become better going forward because the costs continue to come down, and what's economically viable today becomes more and more attractive in the future. So economic gravity is on our side. That's true at all portions of the value chain, from grid scale through commercial and industrial, all the way down to distributed. Our challenge is we've got man-made climate change, you know, the, the global warming effect looming over our heads, and we need speed. We, we need to get there faster than just normal economic forces would otherwise achieve. So that means we need essentially everything that can help us make that transition faster. It means it begins with policy decisions around the world that help incentivize uh, bringing up capacity for renewables that help incentivize renewable energy projects um, that help levelize the playing field, meaning make it as expensive or preferably more expensive to continue to consume fossil fuel based energy in all forms. Uh, and uh, and can, in everything that we can imagine now, there's a big debate about what's most effective is it do you focus on the grid scale? Do you focus on transmission? Do you focus on uh, on the distributed? And my view is it's all of the above. Uh, and uh, there, you know, and it varies by location or whatever is the, you know is most suited to a particular place. Uh, but we we really need everything, uh, and you know, we we should have very low tolerance for continuing to perpetuate uh, high carbon generating forms of, of power and energy uh, going forward. And on that uh, thought, Jorg, thank you very much uh, for a very insightful discussion and I look forward uh, for our next one. Thank you very much. Perfect, Ipatia. Great to be with you. Thank you.